All right, I want to start with two quick Bible study notes, uh, which is that we skipped over the beginning of chapter 5 this week because we're going to be talking about Melchizedek and the priesthood of Christ a little bit more in the next coming weeks. The other thing I want to say is that we're covering a lot of ground in Hebrews this summer, and this section contains a really important to study passage, which is... uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I'm going to talk about it tonight, but if you want to talk more about it, I would love to. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to get as in-depth tonight as, uh, as uh, possibly could be needed for that passage. But, uh, but if you want to get coffee and talk about it, I would love to. Okay, so uh, we've seen two warning passages in Hebrews. Hebrews 2, which cautioned us from drifting away from God's beautiful kingdom. And then Hebrews 3, which asks us to interrogate whether we are telling ourselves a story different than the good story in which God offers us participation. Now we're at the third warning passage in Hebrews, third of five, okay? And let me start with a comment by one scholar who points this out. He says, although deeply aware of the problems these believers are facing, the author of this letter does not turn to his necessary pastoral exhortation until he has first reminded them of the uniqueness of Christ. What that's basically saying is the, the preacher is not starting with instructions on how to be a better Christian. The preacher is painting a picture in the mind of who Christ is because that is the primary work. I've said a number of times that Hebrews is not trying to teach us how to shape up. It's not trying uh, to make us better people or give us five-point plans on how to, how to step up our spiritual game. It's trying to recalibrate our story. And part of that is correcting the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. But primarily, it's to remind us of what is true about Christ. So before we go any further, you don't have to close your eyes, but if you want to, you can. And, and fix your mind's eye on this. Okay, put, put the gaze of your soul on these words. Christ is our king, sitting on a throne. Christ is our perfect human brother who knows our family. He knows our pain. He knows our joy. Christ is our trailblazing Messiah, bushwhacking through painful brush to make a way for us. Christ is the destination of our mind, soul, and body. He is the ultimate promised land in which we find our rest and satisfaction if we will only leave our past for this new home. That's what the first couple of chapters of Hebrews are telling us about Christ. And then over the next couple weeks, we're going to learn how Christ is our pastor, counselor, priest, who takes on our loneliness and our anxiety and our depression and our utter failings to burn them up in ashes before God. Christ is the core of the story. And we can't understand our part of the story unless we meditate on those descriptions of Christ first. We can't apply any exhortation or instructions uh, if we don't first refocus our gaze on Jesus. So in Hebrews 5 and 6, we learn that Christ is the ultimate priest. And priest is a term that we primarily use these days uh, for maybe a Catholic pastor, 
And it means pastor, or I heard another, uh, another pastor describe the Old Testament priest as akin to a modern counselor. The role of the priest is a person in the community uh, who takes on the burdens of his people and takes them before God. The priest, like a pastor or a counselor, allows people to unload their burdens and pains of the heart and the soul and their sins, and he takes them on to himself, and he carries those to God. So today, we're going to look at that, and, and we're going to look at it in three ways, three words to key you in on where I am in the passage. The first is, we're going to explore how we're dull, which it says in, in verse 511. And then in 6.1, it says, therefore, let's, let's not keep on harping on the beginnings of the faith. So we're going to look at how we're dull, and then the therefore of what the dullness leads to. And then finally in verse 9, yet we do have a better future that is still possible. All right, so three things. We are dull, therefore let's take, take stock of our drifting, yet let's not forget that he has hung on to us and we have hope. So what happens to us when we tell ourselves stories of delusion or entitlement? Or self-interest, which is a lot of what the sermon last week was about. Well, we get stuck. When we tell ourselves these false stories, we get stuck, we get stagnant, we become dull of hearing, we become lazy. Those are all the words that this dullness is trying to capture in verse uh, 511. And the preacher is not insulting the congregation so much as asking them to be real about their condition. Do we really live our lives informed by a reality that God sends angels as wind and fire, as it says earlier in Hebrews? Do we really live our lives informed by a reality that believes God immersed himself in the human experience as a person in the flesh to know our burdens and carry them as the perfect pastor? If we don't, then how can we expect to be full of joy and find our satisfaction in him? Well, we can't. That makes us dull. It makes us stuck. What are we dull to? What is it that that we're having a hard time hearing? The word in your Bible is probably oracles, which just means the message of God. We're, We're dull to the message of God. These Hebrews, they know the message. They know it. By now, they should be a congregation of people teaching it. But instead, they need someone to teach them, again, the basic principles of the message of God. They're starting over with milk before they can eat solid food. For us, I think that that means that we're being so busied by our daily life that in the words of Annie Dillard, we're not sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Another writing that came to mind for me was this poem, Vacation, by Wendell Berry. I'm going to read it for you. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation... He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river, upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly. Toward the end of his vacation, he showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it, preserving it forever, the river, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat behind which he stood with his camera preserving his vacation, even as if he was having it. 
so that after he had had it, it would still be there. It would be there. With a flick of a switch, there it would be. But he would not be in it. He would never be in it. The man's so busy trying to video the vacation, he never experiences it. Or here's another example. I saw a cartoon two weeks ago where two soldiers were hunkered down in a bunker. These are soldiers. They're in in a combat zone. Bunker. They're in a bunker. One soldier's holding a stack of photos, and he says to the other in the bunker, this is my girl back home. This is a picture of a funny sign I saw this morning. These are 40 pictures of a sunset I took trying to get the exposure right. And this is, you know, presumably going on while they're getting bombed. And it's calling to mind the insanity of how we take and stare at mundane photos all day on social media. You know, not sufficiently sensible of conditions. They're in a war, and this guy is flipping through 40 mediocre attempts at capturing a sunset. Like I said, the preacher's not mad at this congregation. He's sad. He's sad because they don't understand how out of touch they are spiritually. Milk is good. Grace is good. The gospel is good. Meeting God is good. Knowing God is better. This is not a valuation of effort. It's a reflection on whether they're enjoying God to the fullest. In other words, the preacher's not trying to figure out whether they're doing a good job. He's just asking them whether they're enjoying what they've been offered. Their dullness is not unlike Wendell Berry's vacationer, physically present on the river, but he never really lives the experience. Or like the soldiers in the bunker, these Hebrews are aloof to the drama around them. They're not persisting on towards spiritual growth. Instead, they're just stuck in the same place. So the question is, are we like the soldiers, flipping through insipid photos whilst bombs come crashing down around us? Or are we like this vacationer on this beautiful river, gliding down with gorgeous trees and rapids, mediating the moment with a plastic camera instead of taking it in with our senses? Are we like the Israelites that we talked about last week, begging to return to Egypt instead of the promised land? Why are these Hebrews so complacent? There's something I actually haven't mentioned yet in any of the sermons about these Hebrew, this, uh, this church that's called the Hebrews Church. Uh, they, were, they were possibly facing persecution, some people think. That was either political or possibly a violent pressure on them. They're compromised because of this pressure. And I think that we live in a similar moment. Just a pause. Do not hear me saying that we are persecuted, okay? Protestant Christianity in America, not a persecuted group, okay? But we do face pushback. We're not facing persecution so much as Christianity is just becoming more and more unfashionable and embarrassing. And I'll give you some examples. Christianity in America has a sort of uh, embarrassing and ugly reputation in a lot of spheres. Uh, the head of a church network that even has an affiliate in our area uh, recently tried to hire someone to kill his wife. That was all over the news. Pastor hires hitman to kill wife. You know, I, we don't even have to uh, 
you know, blink to see how many sex scandals there are in churches that are in the news right now. Uh, there's pastors that are buying airplanes because they're able to because they use their churches as tax shelters. On the lighter side, uh, Aaron and I like to joke about the fact that whenever uh, the news media is trying to find someone to speak on behalf of Christianity, it seems like they don't ever think to call Tim Keller or N.T. Wright. They cut to some guy in East Texas. He's holding his snake. He's got a firm date on when the end times are. It's today. Okay? And he's, he's going to provide – he's going to speak for Christianity in America on whatever's going on in that cultural moment. It's not appealing to be a Christian in our culture. And so maybe, maybe we're like this Hebrews church in that we're happy to have the introduction made. We're happy to know God, have an introduction with him. But we want to move on because it's a little uncomfortable to go much deeper than that. Instead, it's, it's a lot more entertaining to make our homes look like a Pinterest board and... Uh, and work jobs that can fund that project. We're dull to growing more intimate with him. Therefore, we just keep going back to the basics. Just going back to the basics of Christianity rather than desperately wanting that to be the thing that we wake up and pursue. So that's the dullness, okay? And now we're going to look at what Hebrews is concerned with where that dullness leads. Verses, uh, ch- chapter 6, verses 1 through 2 can be paraphrased this way. Don't stop getting to know him once you are introduced. Yes, we've seen the basics of Christianity and we can rest fully on those, but there is so much more. These basics of faith in verse, verses 1 and 2, when it lists these basic things, uh, some people think that those are just the six tenets that were taught in the catechesis class for new members in this church. It's the basics of faith in Christ. They're good. A, little, a literal uh, translation of verse 1 goes something like this. Go on to maturity, not again throwing down the substructure. I love that image in the Greek. Go on to maturity, not again throwing down the substructure. Imagine building a house's foundation and then building another foundation on top of it and then repairing that and then adding to it and then repairing to it. It would be sturdy, right? It'd be sturdy, but there would be no walls. There'd be no doors. There'd be no roof. It would not be useful or beautiful. The preachers say, yes, the substructure is crucial, But let's build a beautiful house on top of it. The Christian life substructure is repentance. It's accepting Christ, a knowledge that our baptism is a sign that we are in God's people, so we don't need to be baptized again and again. He's brought us into the fold. And of course, our faith in Christ, which is our justification. We possess membership in the family of Christ. We hold that in our hearts, and nothing can revoke that adoption. The joy of the Christian life is not just to realize those things. It's not just to realize that we're justified, adopted, loved by God, but to actually grow in our intimacy with him through worship and prayer. The phrase dead works in verse 2, it's an idiom for sin. Uh, Gerhardus Voss says this, 
The opposite of dead works is the living God. So the contrast is this. It's, it's that there's dead works, which is our sin, and the opposite of that is not just being introduced to God. It's worship of the living God. The hope that we have is not to subscribe to belief in God, but to grow to know and love him, to worship him. A lot of Protestant Christians view their faith as a subscription to Jesus and the benefit to access him when needed. And that's not untrue. It's just a small view of what's before us. Instead, we should think of ourselves as fused, wedded, united in body and spirit to Christ. We're not subscribers. We are married to him, in covenant with him at the expense of his blood. And the result of that is that we can pray to him freely. We can know him without bringing anything to the table. And that's a treasure that is right there. It's right within us. I love that contrast. Think about this. This is, this is kind of throughout Hebrews. Subscribers versus the beloved. Is Christ something accessible to you occasionally? Or are you, are you aware that you are united to Christ? A friend of mine put it to me this way. I feel like there's this fruit that lives inside of me, she said. And I can taste some of it, but it's covered with these layers of my family of origin issues and my insecurities and my pride and my self-interest and all that's stopping me from enjoying that fruit is how much I go before him to allow him to peel away my sin and brokenness. Isn't that a great image? It makes me think of a black walnut. You ever seen a black walnut? If you haven't, you can go over to our old house. There's about 8,000 of them. Uh, A black walnut has this green leathery exterior. And and once you peel off that skin, you get to this this black, tarry substance. And then underneath that is this shell and then the nut. Okay, so you can hold a black walnut and you have it. But you're not necessarily enjoying it yet. You don't fully enjoy it until you peel away the leathery green exterior and strip off the tarry black substance under the skin to get to the shell that you can't break with your hand. Once you get past the skin, past the black stuff, crack that shell with a tool, you can get to the fruit, which is the nut itself. And you don't have to. You don't have to do that. You have the black walnut. You don't have to enjoy it right now, but you can. So why not? That's the gist of the end of Hebrews 5 and the beginning of Hebrews 6. You have union with Christ. Don't be dull to this fact. Nurture it. Don't settle for a subscription. Go for intimacy. And that brings us up to what I said is is one of the seemingly most difficult passages in the New Testament. And I've alluded to it a couple times as we've gone through Hebrews 2 and 3's warning passages. Remember, Hebrews is a sermon. It's one sermon. The people who encountered it for the first time heard all this stuff in one sitting. So we have to read these warning passages together because they're meant to go together. Hebrews 2 was cautioning the humans against drifting away from God. Hebrews 3 was warning us to not tell ourselves false stories that lead us back to bondage instead of toward the loving rest of Christ. And Hebrews 6 is concerned that if we drift... 
If we give in to self-delusion, over time we will be hardened to enjoying God and reject Him. And are we able to rescue ourselves from that bitter state? No. It is impossible for us. It says in verse 4 that the project of restoring someone who's tasted the gospel, been enlightened by its truth and goodness, but has fallen away, is a futile project. Some other words you could use, it's, it's a venture that's impotent. It's powerless. It's impossible. And it is impossible for humans. It's impossible. But reading scripture on the whole, we see that God is always faithful to his people. They make poor choices like choosing the soup or whining to return to Egypt. And sometimes he lets his people have what they ask for, even though it's not best, like a human king. But Hebrews is a story. It's not a logic problem. And I think that's how you have to read Hebrews 6. It's persuasive storytelling, using hyperbole to drive home a point. And hyperbole is a literary device, which Hebrews has been using other literary devices, like metaphors um, of solid milk, or solid food, not solid milk. (laughs) Although that would be a visceral image for a sermon. Solid food versus milk, or boats slipping away, but Christ being the anchor. Uh, pilgrimage behind the trailblazer, uh, healthy and unhealthy crops. A few years ago, Ben and I, Ben Milner, our pastor, and I, we were at a gathering where Craig Barnes, the president of uh, Princeton Seminary, was speaking. And he told this great story uh, where he said that every year, these young people come into my office and they ask him, will you please pray for me? I don't know God's will with my future job situation. I have a job opportunity in Chicago, but I also have one in Denver. And I don't know which one God wants me to take. And Barnes went on to imagine out loud for us if God were possibly in heaven thinking, man, I hope he chooses Chicago because if he goes to Denver... There's nothing I can do for him. (laughs) And I think this relates to Hebrews 6, because God is not concerned with our drifting and hardening because he's not like, if they they get too far, there's there's only so much I can do as the governor of the universe. So are we humans prone to hardening our hearts to God? Yes. Are we prone to drift away? From him toward things that will rust and rot. Yes. It's all that we can do to run away from him. So we should pay attention. Hence the hyperbole. It's impossible to restore. Absolutely, we should go before him early and often, asking him to peel away our hard skin and our junk and crack, crack open our hardened hearts so that we can taste the fruit of life in God. We are dull. Therefore, we should be careful. That's what it's saying. Yet. That's what verse 9 says. Yet. My beloved friends, in your case, I am sure we will press on. That's what it says. Remember, the preacher's not mad. The preacher's sad. As we press on in Hebrews, I just want to ask you this summer, as a congregation, to 
to remind each other of what we started this sermon talking about. The majesty of Christ who holds together the whole cosmos. Encourage each other to go towards his rest. To not settle for drifting towards materialism and meritocracy. To not settle for returning to the American dream. And instead, go to the promise of an intimate life in Christ. Because we are prone to dullness, we are prone to drifting, we are prone to delusional storytelling. And I call you to this because I had the privilege of having someone do this for me recently. A friend of mine resisted giving me practical advice. So much of the advice that we get these days is just a practical jig that assumes that some, let me give you a little adjustment on your life and it's gonna help solve your imperfect state. And I was grumbling about something and you know, when you're grumbling about something, someone tries to make you feel better by giving you a little tweak. Try thinking about doing this or talk to this person about see if you can get this to happen. But this friend, as I grumbled, he lovingly pointed my eyes back to Christ. He described to me what a life following Christ looks like. So I'm asking you to please do that for each other. Have the audacity in kind, gentle, and loving words to tell your friends to stop chasing the meritocracy, to stop going after materialism, to stop gossiping, to stop grumbling, and instead to tell each other the stories of a life in God. I do worry about whether this church is going to mature. You know what the stereotype of the Hebrews congregation is? This is the stereotype. And it's from this chapter. They were generous in mercy ministry. But they were so stuck in their culture that they weren't growing spiritually. Let me say that again. They were generous in mercy ministry, but so stuck in their culture that they weren't growing spiritually. They were wealthy, and they weren't growing. One scholar describes the preacher's concern in Hebrews 5 and 6 as alert to their failure to mature as teachers of the truth, although they had been, they had been believers for some time and were capable of engaging in a ministry. But he's equally aware of their unselfish generosity in meeting the needs of other Christians and an expression of Christian love. <laughs> when I read that description of Hebrews, I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like my church. This church has been so generous to help families adopt. This church has paid for a lot of people to get into counseling. This church has helped a lot of people with medical bills. This is a generous, generous church. And at the same time, I worry that we are prone, as time goes on, to hunker down, disengage from the people around us for our own little enclaves of community and safe friendships, devote endless hours to our work, and take the money that we get from our work and just consume stuff, and then stagnate spiritually while still being very generous. My beloved Salem Press, keep pressing on in love. Keep living a life in God's story. Do not live a life of overwork. 
Don't overcommit to your lifestyle. Don't retreat to the meritocracy. Don't retreat to materialism. Don't let bitterness or self-pity set in your hearts. Instead, open your homes to each other. That's what we're going to talk about later in Hebrews. Work less. Join small groups. Eat more meals with people. Tell stories about God's faithfulness. Share wisdom with younger Christians. Stay engaged with people who tell you the stories of how good and majestic and beautiful and imminent God's Spirit is. Please receive what I'm about to say as a sincere application and not a sales pitch, okay? Join small groups. They are not perfect. They can be mundane. They also have more potential than anything I can think of to spur each other toward a more robust union with Christ. Consider being in a group this year and think about orienting your group this way. When you get to the prayer time, start each week not asking, how can we pray for each other? Instead ask, how can we point each other back to the truth of Christ? The other thing I want to say is go to that Barnabas Center training. That training is essentially teaching people how to give each other deep spiritual advice instead of vapid practical adjustments. Don't be dull. Don't settle for the substructure. Taste the good, good word of God. We are a frantic, self-obsessed creature. We are also reconciled and healed by Christ dying on the cross. Think of yourselves as fused, wedded, united in body and spirit to Christ. We are not subscribers. We are married to Christ in covenant with him at the expense of his blood. We can come freely to this table to be healed of our gossip, our meritocracy, our need to consume stuff, our insecurity. His body and his blood is the medicine for our dullness. So let's take 